the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. And a pleasant good afternoon to you. Welcome. It is Wednesday, the 24th of January. My goodness, this month is almost gone. Isn't that amazing? By the way, I'll mention if you hear a voice in the background during today's show, I just I picked up a new tablet. And I haven't quite figured out how to turn the speaker off yet. <laughs> so I think, who is that woman that keeps interrupting, Craig? Um, it's just uh, Alexa or one of those nameless, faceless, Siri-type voices. At any rate, let's get down to cases, shall we? We're going to talk a little bit later on in tonight's program about the issue of Syria and what seems to be a second wave of genocide against Christians in that part of the world, this time at the hands of what, sadly, historically, in the 20th century at least, has been a longtime enemy of Christians, and that is the state of Turkey. This time around, Turkey has been focusing on portions of Syria that have been occupied by Syrian Christians that have been escaping Daesh or ISIS and all of that. Well, now it seems as if there has been excursions into Syria by Turkey, specifically targeting these Christian enclaves. We'll talk about it with Jason Jones and talk about what the church here in America should be doing to stand up for our brothers and sisters in Turkey. As we lead off the program tonight, though, I look at one of the more initially nefarious voices on the side of the pro-abortion movement, And down through the years, if you've been a frequent listener to this program, you've heard me talk about Dr. Bernard Nathanson, who, in addition to being the co-founder of the National Abortion Rights Action League, was also very influential in training Planned Parenthood doctors on how to perform abortions once abortion became legal in America in 1973, and also admitted to being engaged in fast-tracking Racist, racist population control plans that were integral to Planned Parenthood under the leadership of its founder, Margaret Sanger. Well, today we take a look at the other side of Dr. Nathanson by someone who was an expert on not only Dr. Nathanson, but his coming to the reality of what life really is. Terry Bentley is the president and founder of the Hosea Initiative and also one of the keynote speakers at this coming Walk for Life West Coast in San Francisco on Saturday. We'll tell you details about that in just a moment. Meanwhile, Terry, great to have you on the program. Uh, So great to be with you, Craig. Thanks for having me on. Dr. Nathanson, while he at the very forefront of the abortion movement in the 1970s was a purveyor of death, um, actually came full circle and and came to a, a, a personal Um, awakening, I guess I'll call it, uh, to understand Mm -hmm. what the abortion agenda was really all about and eventually did a significant about-face. Tell us a bit more for those that maybe are not familiar with his story. Yeah, I I always think it's important for all listeners to know that 
Dr. Bernard Nathanson, he was known as America's abortion king. He called himself the keeper of the abortion industry keys because to know his story uh, and to read his you know, well-kept minutes of the NARAL meetings back in the late 60s, early 70s, uh, it tells the story. It tells the real story of how this team of atheists set out to deceive our entire country uh, about the reality of abortion. And they knew they were setting out to strip the unborn child of all rights and protections, uh, and they did it with an eight-point propaganda campaign. So what I like to say is, if, if he was if he was the keeper of the abortion industry keys, why not use those keys and let's unlock uh, this demonic stronghold that ha- that's really been holding our country captive for over 45 years? Um, so he, he was the medical face of the abortion movement back in the late 60s, early 70s. And and this really, in terms of the role that he played and eventually going public with just mm-hmm. how organized this thing really was, really really flies in the face of the notion that has often been promoted by Planned Parenthood, NARAL, um, at all, and that is that, well, we're just simply trying to protect a woman's right to choose, protect her constitutional rights, make sure that the ultimate decision regarding her body is in her hands and no one else's. I mean, a lot lot of it seems to be wrapped in flag-waving in the U.S. Constitution, things of this sort. But in reality, the agenda that was here that was being promoted early on by Dr. Nathanson and others like him was far more evil, far more insidious than that, wasn't it? Well, well, it absolutely was, because it was all based on lies and deceptions. In fact, I'm pulling this from memory, so I hope I can can get this out right. Um, Dr. Nathanson, at the end of one of his books, he said, I believe the abortion ethic is fatally and forever flawed by the immorality of the means of its victory. A political victory achieved by such odious tactics is at best an unstable tyranny. And then he goes on to, he talks more, and then toward the end he says, I believe that an America which allows a junta of moral thugs, he was calling himself a moral thug, to foist an evil of incalculable dimensions upon this country, and if the country just allows it to, to flower, um, the, the country is going to end up with a millennium, millennium of shame. Um, so, it, it's, I mean, he called himself a moral thug, so they used an eight-point propaganda campaign to deceive. I'm talking about deceive far and wide, not just the mothers and fathers. But their their uh, propaganda campaign deceived the Supreme Court justices, judges across this country, legislators, the medical community, doctors, the media, as well as clergy. Is it so fair to say that this was this was motivated by two factors? One, obviously, as it remains today, based on greed. And the other, fair to say, based largely upon racist ideology that was um, sort of inbred in the in the mentality of the so-called science of eugenics. Oh, oh, uh, well, I don't think so much, Doctor Nathanson. I would not have identified him. I will not identify him as a racist. He he actually thought he was doing the right thing for women, and um, he he really did. I mean, he he knew they were killing babies, but I mean they. I guess when, you know, with that kind of an atheist mindset, and he was setting out to, they wanted victory, and it didn't matter how they got their victory, they just had to move it from point A to point B. 
get abortion legalized, get it sort of normalized. And so it didn't matter how. Now, being, being the atheists that they all were, okay, lying, lying was okay. Because if you don't believe in God, I mean, at the end of the day, it's only God that gives us that direction that lying is wrong, right? So, so they, they, they came up with this plan to exploit American women, and to do so, they had to deceive. And they, I mean, they would use false statistics. You know, Nathanson said 60% of America wants abortion on demand. 60%. I asked him, where, so Dr. Nathanson, where did you get the 60% number? And he said, well, I really pulled it out of thin air. We just knew we had to be above 50%. The real percentage of people that, that wanted abortion on demand, it was not 60%. It was one half of 1%. Wow, that's uh, more than just a mild exaggeration to make one's point, isn't it? Well, yeah, and then I mean, and the, the, those women who went to Washington D.C. and then other other <laughs> cities across the country last Saturday, and they're they're screaming for their quote right, you know, to kill a child, and they they, they hold up signs of coat hanger abortions, you know, remember the coat hanger abortions. Well, here's here's the truth coming right from the doctor who marketed that lie. Um, he would say that, that when, when abortions, you know, being back then, of course, when it was illegal, he would say 5,000 to 10,000 women a year are dying of back alley, you know, coat hanger, you know, illegal abortion. And no, they weren't. That was a bald-faced lie. On the high side, it was maybe 200. And I've had other people tell me even 200 was too high, but Nathan, Dr. Nathanson said maybe 200 to 250, not 5,000 to 10,000 women dying. And if that was the case, we, we should have found a dead woman up and down every alley across America, but that was not the case. It was a bald-faced lie. So false statistics, false polling. And then he used the media. I mean, he used them. They were wet clay in his hands. He, because he was an OBGYN, and he had a job to do. He had to convince the American public by way of the media that um, abortion is a, is a good thing, you know, to get this thing legalized, and that, that, that the majority of people want it legalized, and women are dying all over the place. And so he, he could tell the media anything, and they would believe it, uh, whether willingly or not. But, I mean, they, they believe what he said. And so they just kept pushing. And then, of course, they'd repeat the lies. So I think I just named four out of eight of the things that they did. So it's, uh, it, it's, it, I think the main thing is that they were all, uh, well, Dr. Nathanson was an atheist. He would not have described himself as a Marxist. I think it's really important to know that the founders of NARAL, Pro-Choice America, the two primary, well, two out of the three, the primary ones, Lawrence Later and Betty Friedan, they were communists. Lawrence Later worked for the first card-carrying communists in, the, uh, in, in Congress. So radical ideas were nothing new for this guy. I mean, he lived and breathed for revolution. Well, this is a revolution to, to morph America into a country which would allow the killing of 60 million babies. This is not a choice. This is murder. And, and of course, the, the irony is this was a this was a very well crafted manipulation of 
everything from the media to the Supreme Court to Americans and a lie that not everyone has bought into, but many people bought into for uh, 40-something years now. Slowly, though, this is being picked away at, more and more beginning to realize not just the the, the falsity of many of the assertions behind the pro-abortion movement, but as we're learning today from Terry Bentley, um, some of the falsity that undergirded the very uh, foundations of the movement back in the 1960s and early 1970s. Terry Bentley, by the way, is going to be one of the keynote speakers at this Saturday's 14th annual Walk for Life West Coast in San Francisco. That'll be meeting in the morning. That'll be at Civic Center Plaza. And then after um, gathering there, there'll be a march that will go from Civic Center Plaza down Market Street toward Justin Herman Plaza, where then there will be a, a rally and keynote speakers there. And, of course, there'll be booths and exchanging of lots of information. So uh, I hope you're making plans to be there. Come rain or come shine. That's this Saturday. Details available on the web at walkforlifewc.com. That's Walk for Life. WC, think of West Coast, WC.com. I'll mention, too, by the way, that uh, Terry is sort of the, the curator now of um, all of the uh, writings of Dr. Bernard Nathanson and, of course, is um, helping to spread word of his awakening and realization of what he was involved with. And, of course, uh, Dr. Bernard Nathanson made an absolute about-face uh, later on in his life and then became a very, very strong vocal proponent for life. And um, she's written a book uh, detailing a lot about um, Nathanson and his work early on and his uh, coming to realize the value of life in a book called What If We've Been Wrong? You can get information on the web at Hosea for you. That's Hosea, the number for you, dot org. And uh, Terry, I hope we get a chance to get you back on the air here soon where we can uh, talk at length about uh, not just the book, but also your work. There is Terry Bentley, keynote speaker this coming um, Saturday's Walk for Life West Coast. Details on the web at walkforlifewc.com. All right, let's get caught up in some traffic here, shall we, as we thank uh, Terry Bentley for being with us. Let's thank Michael Bennett for also being with us today. Wet, rainy, and uh, cold out there. Let's see how that's impacting your Wednesday commute. The latest now with Michael in the KFAX Traffic Center. What's going on, buddy? And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. It was a very painful period in Eastern European history that in the um, early portion of the 20th century, when Turkish forces set out to systematically attack Armenia and eventually lead to what is commonly known as the Armenian Holocaust, systematically claiming the lives of some 1.5 million Armenians in 1915, largely all Christians. And while Turkey has been reticent to openly admit to its crimes, the mentality that created the firestorm which led to these attacks back in 1915 seems to be brewing, albeit on a significantly lar a smaller scale, but nevertheless seem to be yet brewing once again as uh, Turkey has been engaged in some excursions into a Kurdish enclave in northern Syria along its border 
That is largely occupied by Christians. We get details now from Jason Jones. Jason is a senior contributor to The Stream. He is a film producer, author, and activist, and a human rights worker. And uh, Jason, great to have you on the program. Thanks for having me on your show tonight. What is the major motivation here? I mean, with with some of the challenges that have been faced by um, uh, Turkish President uh, Recep Ergon, even at home, and there have been protests and things of this sort, and he's had to uh, quell some um, violence in his own country. What's the motivation now to dive into Syria? Is this once again sort of uh, an effort to try in a thinly veiled fashion not only um, support the regime of Assad, but also to provide uh, aid and support to Daesh or to ISIS? No, you know, this is just good old-fashioned real politic. This is Erdogan and the Turks um, focused on their, I, I think, very short-sighted, um, but with a very short-sighted focus on their national security interests. You know, they, they have been fighting a war with the PKK, um, and uh, but the reality is they've crossed the line. They are shelling our best allies. And I really thank you for going back to the Armenian Genocide you know, in the shadow of the Armenian Genocide was the Sykes-Pico Agreement. I'm going to get a little wonky for you here, but I think your audience deserves that we just lay it all out. The, um, in the shadow of the, uh, the Armenian Genocide, the Brits and the French divided up the region in a way that was beneficial to Britain and France with the Sykes-Pico Agreement. And the, really the sorrowful tragedy was it was to be a nation-state for the Kurds. The Kurds are the largest ethnic community in the world without their own state. Um, and that was by design. And the design was to keep the region fragile and dependent on their colonial masters. So for a century, this has been sorrow for the Kurds and the people who live in Kurdistan, like the Assyrians, the Chaldeans, those are Christian groups, and um, uh, even smaller, more marginalized minority communities like the Kakai and the Yazidis. And this, our problem with Turkey really goes back to the invasion of Iraq when Turkey refused to allow us entry into Iraq from Turkey. And what this meant was where our troops did enter into Iraq, we had a massing of troops, which led to uh, higher casualties. There are American soldiers dead uh, because Turkey didn't allow us entry into Iraq. And it also meant that we couldn't control Mosul. We could never purge al-Qaeda from Mosul. Now, who, well, well, Turkey's been betraying us every step of the way. The Kurds have been our greatest ally. My son just got back from Iraq. He was in Iraq with the United States Army and in Syria, came home Christmas Eve. And, you know, my son and his, his uh, cohorts, you know, we didn't have U.S. casualties because of the, my own son could have been saved by the heroic effort of the Kurds that did our dirty work in battling ISIS. So here we have our allies, the Kurds, our co-religionists, I'm a Christian, our co-religionists, the Christians, being hammered by our NATO ally, Turkey. And so I think the American taxpayers, and maybe the folks listening can ask their Congress, members of Congress, why are we sending our money to NATO when our NATO ally hasn't been an ally? When you join an alliance, you put your, your um, interests together with the interests of your allies. Turkey has never been thoughtful of the interests of the United States. I will say in Europe, to Erdogan's defense, uh, they've done a magnificent job partnering with the Europeans and dismantling 
Islamist cells across Europe, and they should be commended for that. I would also say Erdogan's party was the first party in Turkey to apologize for the Armenian genocide. So I don't think it's hopeless. But uh, my next article, which I'm working on right now, is just calling for a new realism, a new realism, where these regimes, these powerful regimes, like Iran and Turkey, be thoughtful. And there is a history of thoughtfulness, especially with the Iranians, believe it or not, to um, the ethnic, the minorities, the ethnic and religious minorities there. We want to see a, a new. We want to see the Gulf countries take an interest in rebuilding the Nineveh Plain. We'd like to see the Turks be thoughtful to the interests of the Kurds and the Christians in the region. The Kurds are really this diamond and the ash of this violent combustion. The Kurds have now religious pluralism. Uh, women have equal rights. We see women even in the legislature. We see Christians not only being respected, but Kurds. Uh, Muslim Kurds dying and bleeding to protect Christians, uh, which is, hard, you know, it's sometimes when we, we remember their role in the Armenian genocide, it's hard for people to wrap their mind around. But the Kurds today are really our best hope for a solid ally in the region. Well, we certainly saw region. that when uh, when we went in to go deal with um, Iraq, didn't we? And, and, and sadly here, as you're pointing out, Jason, this is part of an ongoing series of what I'll deem systematic attacks on Christians in specific, on civilians, but in in Christian enclaves, in places like Iraq and Afghanistan and Libya and Egypt and in Africa and the Sudan, and now in this portion of Syria, um, where quite frankly, it's of no great value or interest other than perhaps politically, I don't believe from a national security standpoint, it's all of that much value to Turkey. But it is from a political viewpoint. And sadly, there has not been enough voice given. Uh, we occasionally hear a story about, oh, uh, an attack on Christians, uh, Coptic Christians in this portion of Egypt, and 150 people were killed, 200 people were killed coming out of uh, services on Easter Sunday, and it's, it makes the news for a, a flash of a second, maybe below the fold or on page three, and then everybody forgets about it. But this is an ongoing issue, and as you alluded to, and I'm going to have you explore this for us a little bit deeper when we come back after the break, as you alluded to, Jason, um, unfortunately, this is not the first time that we either didn't put enough voice behind defending the defenseless or lined up on the wrong side in terms of support and uh, got behind those that we thought and perceived to be uh, our friends that in reality were really our enemies masquerading as our friends. Jason Jones, senior contributor to the stream, we're talking about um, one of his most recent articles that you can find in stream.org, S-T-R-E-A-M, stream.org, on the Turkish attack, threatening Christians there. And sadly enough, not only is it a concern in terms of a, a level of genocide against fellow believers, but then, too, um, undermining stability in that region. And so the vicious cycle in the Middle East continues. We'll get back to more of our conversation with Jason Jones right after this time out here on the Wednesday edition of Lifeline from KFAX. All right, let's check out what's going on out there traffic-wise. Once again, Michael Bennett with an update from the KFAX Traffic Center. Michael. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. 
One of the challenges historically that we have had as a nation has been either the matter of supporting military juntas in banana republics because they thought we believed that they were going to do favorable things on behalf of the United States and end up aligning ourselves ultimately with the wrong side. And then we have to either apologize for it or make extreme excuses for it. Sometimes we just haven't been quick enough on the draw to recognize um, where the real alliances and allegiances are, particularly when it comes to fundamental values of America in terms of freedom of the press, freedom of religion, freedom of uh, association, freedom of speech, things of this sort. And so once again, uh, we have not been fast enough on the draw in addressing a member of NATO, Turkey, who has, if we're learning today from Jason Jones, systematically engaged in attacks on Christians in a um, area in northern Syria called Afrin in specific. Do we know offhand, Jason, how many have lost their lives so far? Are there any numbers? You know, the, the, the only numbers I've heard so far was from the initial assault, which is six. So I've been trying to get to, I've seen numbers, but I, I, the only that I have seen it's confirmed, and I know that was from the initial assault. So the numbers, unfortunately, are much higher, especially because things have been have been heating up. But, and and um, this, this, of course, communication is a difficult thing. We know that. I wonder why why is the press not paid more attention to this issue? As I alluded to just before the break, even as we've seen uh, systematic attacks on uh, Coptic Christians in Egypt, for example, if it makes the headlines, it makes the bottom of the page, bottom of the fold, uh, you know, several pages back in, doesn't seem to capture near enough attention. Why is that? You know, it's it's really confusing. My, my family and I, I wrote an article, actually a Facebook post that went viral and was read by a million people about my family's experience in Hawaii when there was a false alarm. And I had was bombarded for media requests. And I took all of those requests so I could turn the interviews around instead of talking about just my family, our experience in Hawaii. But I could talk about, you know, the decades-long experience Christians have been having in Iraq and Syria. And... Um, it's really a shame, and that's not just the mainstream media. I would say the Drudge Report, Matt Drudge didn't have a single link on the Drudge Report when Iran and the government of Iraq invaded Kurdistan in the fall, They're giving a little more coverage to um, the attack by Turkey on Syria. And you were talking about our, our values. You know, the Federation of Northern Syria, you have women in the legislature, you have equal rights. When I was there, I met a rabbi, you know, the uh, rabbi jews from that the only place where you can find jews in iraq living safely is in kurdistan they have our values and if you're listening you know it's a big world and there are a lot of bad things happening all over the world and you can think what does this have to do with us well we invaded iraq we broke iraq we left iraq obama cut and run when we had established order and isis the iraqi army then uh, abandoned their weapons in place, and ISIS came and picked them up and then used American weapons to slaughter ancient Christian communities, Christian communities that have been there since the first century. I went to a church in Iraq called St. Thomas, and I said, how did it get its name? And they said, well, St. Thomas built his church. I went to another monastery called St. Matthew's, and this monastery was founded by a, 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 a uh, missionary who came there from Iran in the early 3rd century, 
and built this monastery, and it's been there since then. So before the Council of Nicaea in this monastery, there have been monks celebrating the Mass every day from before the Council of Nicaea. They were going back 1,700, 1,800 years ago. Wow. That, that's right. The oldest extant New Testament is there. They speak Aramaic, the language that Jesus Christ spoke. We went there. We didn't finish the job. We cut and run. And now our co-religionists are suffering. Other ethnic and religious minorities are suffering. And, you know, it's in our interest to let people know we're faithful to our allies. Uh, the Russians are mocking us, you know, on RTTV, watch RT, all day long, all night long, they're mocking the United States for bowing to Turkey. But I would say to the Russians, two years ago, they shot down one of your jets, and then your, your pilot ejected, and then they killed your pilot on the ground. And Putin did nothing but look at his feet. And now Turkey's, you know, flirting publicly with Russia, saying that if the alliance breaks with NATO or the United States, they'll go to Russia. And I say, well, go. And I pray to God that you are as good of an ally to Russia as you have been to the United States. I congratulate them for working with Europe, European countries, and dismantling these, these Islamist cells. But, but the United States has interest in Iraq, and when you continue to shell our greatest ally in the war against ISIS, you are destroying your relationship with the United States. This is the message we need to send. And if we don't send this message, if we walk away from the Kurds, really what good is it? to be an ally of the United States. Well, and, and the that. irony is that for the longest time, once we had boots on the ground in Iraq, the only real supporters that we had there, uh, because of, of how widely spread the infiltration of the Ba'ath Party was, the only real allies that we had there in Iraq initially were the Kurds. And, you know, at the end of the day, we're, we're happy to take the support when we need it. And then when they need the support from us, we kind of flip the coin and decide whether or not it, we're really going to get anything out of it. And I'm sorry. I know it's hard to hear that, but that is the stark reality. Yeah, we're still the greatest country on the face of the planet, but there have been a lot of very short-sighted decisions made up to and including this Jason just alluded to, um, going in, yeah, we got rid of Saddam Hussein, we created a mess as a result, and left an even bigger mess as we've pulled out. And now in the wake of all of that, the destabilization of neighboring countries like Syria and the ability to see Islamists come in and attack Christians and uh, watch what's been happening with, with now thank goodness that we're, we've seen some progress in, in defeating Daesh or ISIS, but... In the meantime, what's happening with people that are morally, ideologically, and from a faith base, our allies? And sadly, they're suffering, and we're not hearing near enough said about this. Is it time well, no. to, be, to be calling upon Congress and the president to, to engage in some action here, in your opinion, Jason? Yes. You write your members of Congress, call your members of Congress, and say that, that you know, why are we funding NATO when NATO countries are attacking our allies with our weapons, with our equipment. You know, Syria and Iraq are really the Holy Land. They are the Holy Land, the oldest churches in the world. There are large Christian communities in Iraq and Syria, very large Christian communities. Tragically, those communities have been decimated uh, since the invasion. Christians have never done worse in Iraq and Syria uh, than after the United States invasion of Iraq. And sadly, even with U.S. troops there, even with U.S. troops there, um, they were suffering. And once we left, all literal, all 
literal hell broke loose. And so this is our responsibility. And I would say chickens come home to roost. The world turned a blind eye to the first Christian genocide that happened just a little over 100 years ago. And what happened? We see the world order was shattered. The Armenian Genocide, World War I, the Bolshevik Revolution, the collapse of Russia into tyranny, the rise of fascism in Europe. We see it cascade. We see China fall under totalitarian socialism. We see genocides and democides across the world. 100 years of horror. We really need to draw a line in the sand, a line that defends the vulnerable, a line that stands with the most vulnerable ethnic and religious minorities and with those communities. Because we're seeing the entire Middle East collapse into chaos. The Gulf states are having internecine war. God forbid that that erupts into a real war between Qatar and the Saudis. We see Iran basically controlling Iraq. Things have never been worse in that region. It doesn't serve our interest. We see China becoming a very powerful player in the region. But, you know, my interest as a Christian, as someone who runs a Christian human rights organization, is I call it the politics of children laughing. My interest is to create an order in which children are happy and playing and safe and getting educated. I've been in those parts of the world been to Iraq, been to Darfur, been to Sudan, and I have seven children. And when I go there, I look at those children, and they're as precious as mine. And it's utopian, and it'll never happen, but we, you know, we want a world in which every child is safe. But I definitely want a world in which my country isn't responsible for hundreds of thousands of women and children suffering. Well, and the other issue here, too, is that if we are going to, as a nation, uh, lay claim to being the power, most powerful nation on Earth, lay claim to the title of protector and defender of democracy globally, then we need to make sure that we are protecting and defending democracy and democratic ideals at all levels, in all places, and particularly for those that have, have not only been identified, but proven themselves to be ideological allies of the United States. At the end of the day, it's the right thing to do. At the end of the day, I am reminded of the observation that the only thing that is necessary for evil to triumph is for good men to do nothing. That wisdom of Tocqueville is as valid today as it was then. Our thanks to Jason Jones, senior contributor to the stream, for being with us. More information, by the way, on his recent article on the Turkish attack threatening Christians, available at stream.org. All right, let's get a look at traffic here for you. Fifteen away from the hour of six. Here is the latest with Michael Bennett. Michael. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We're going to spend some time in this portion of the program talking about power. Now, at least you think we're going to dive into a bit of a thesis on how to reduce your energy bills and <laughs> save money. Uh, no, not quite that kind of power, but power nevertheless. A topic that while most of us don't spend a lot of time thinking about in a direct fashion, we nevertheless are engaged in it. Some of us exercise it. Others have a thirst or a yearning for it. It's something that we think about at certain levels, and yet we have this very odd relationship with power. We know certainly that the old adage of what is it, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. But what of our 
relationship to this topic of power from a spiritual standpoint. My next guest tonight has taken some time to dive deeper into this very equation, and he details his findings and really kind of kind of pulling back, so to speak, the, the layers of the onion to help us better understand our relationship to power inside the pages of Playing God, Redeeming the Gift of Power. It is written by author, executive editor of Christianity Today, Andy Crouch. And Andy, thanks so much for being on the program with us. Thank you, Craig. I'm delighted to be here. Fascinating topic. It's something that, as I say, well, we probably don't get up every day and think specifically about this topic. It's one that we're we're tied into on a day by day basis, and a lot of us find ourselves even in this in this struggle for or against power of one sort or another, uh, literally daily, don't we? It's part of being a human being. I think it's actually part of being a living. Any living creature uh, has some kind of power because power in the most basic sense, is just the ability to make a difference in the world, to make some kind of change in the world. And if you're alive, you're doing that one way or another. But as human beings, we have much more complex kinds of power than other creatures do, other parts of creation do. And that's ultimately because we're, we're made in the image of God in, in a way that other creatures aren't. And I think that's why every human being, um, you know, you mentioned a yearning for power. Every human being kind of wants room to, to make something of value and worth. But then also this has become very distorted uh, by our own sin and the ways that we've uh, distanced ourselves from God. Indeed, we see uh, laid out literally from the Garden of Eden uh, the capacity of power to either do good or do evil. And then it seems as if it's been a, a history-long, lifelong struggle for mankind in trying to deal with well, what exactly is our relationship to power? What do we do with it? Why do we yearn for it? How do we corrupt it? How do we drive it in the right direction so that it can, in fact, do more good than it does evil? You know, when you, when you lay it out like that, you realize in a way the whole story of Scripture is a story about power. It's about the original power that human beings were meant to have. They're made in the image of God. They're the climax of creation in Genesis 1. And they're given dominion. You know, that's a power word over the whole creation. These very frail, vulnerable creatures, just like you and me, are, are told that they're to have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and, you know, all this stuff that pre-technological humanity couldn't directly control. And yet they're given this vision that they're there to represent the Creator in the midst of creation. But then something goes very wrong, and I think you'd sum it up by saying they try to uh, declare, depend, uh, declare independence from God. They try to separate themselves from God and use their power for themselves. And the power that we were meant to have, which was meant to be the, for the flourishing of the whole world, ends up being kind of turned in on our own uh, benefit, our own self-protection. And then the question becomes, how is God going to intervene to set this story right, and that in many ways is, is the story of the rest of the Bible. And it really is amazing, as you point out. I mean, literally, in the opening chapter of Genesis, we see the first action of God, a display of His power, <laughs> as He engages in His creative power to bring about planet Earth. Then we see, later on, once mankind is about the scene, uh, first an account of the power struggle between Lucifer and God himself, and right. then later on, man's power struggle as we engage in this battle in the Garden of Eden. And it seems as if this, this issue of kind of a, a power struggle with God or against God has kind of been a component from day one, hasn't it? 
Absolutely. And this was actually true even in the world where the, where the book of Genesis was first written down, because the other creation stories that were told by the, the gods of Babylon or the, you know, the religion of Babylon all said that the world began with a conflict. Uh, they were all conflict stories. The amazing thing about Genesis 1 is it does not have, it doesn't begin with conflict. The conflict comes in later, and the, the root conviction of Genesis 1 is that when God uses his creative power, it brings only abundance. It's not kind of a zero-sum game where if I win, you lose, or if you win, I lose. Instead, you get more and more flourishing. Uh, what happens, though, when the man and the woman are tempted, <laughs> and when they get into that, and when that sets in motion, really, history as we know it, is power becomes about conflict, and it becomes about competition. It's no longer about mutual flourishing, where we actually both could win. It's about one of us is going to, to dominate uh, the other, or one force is going to dominate the other. And we start to believe that that's the realist form of power, that the, the most real power is the power that can make you do something you don't want to do, rather than the power that can call into being a world or new kinds of creativity, new kinds of culture uh, that actually benefits everyone. So what's fascinating about this, then, is we really get pulled into this topic, Andy, of power in relationship to whether it's being used for uh, malevolent purposes or, on the other hand, malevolent purposes, Mm -hmm. that impacts Every relationship that we have, I mean, certainly with God, I mean, sin is what better description of the power struggle uh, that exists between mankind and God uh, than to see sin and and how that power fight's going on. And not just, though, on the vertical plane, but even on the horizontal plane in our relationships. I mean, think of the young teenager who's rebelling against his parents, and all of a sudden there's this power struggle that we see that's being displayed there. Even the friction between husband and wife and relationships at that level oftentimes are are demonstrative of this fight over power. They really are about power, and uh, and I think that's because in many ways it's the most it's the most fundamental thing we're given to work with as human beings, either for good or for bad. Um, and so you do find it in every relationship, actually, every workplace, every church, every family, and and most of us, realistically, the place where most of us have the most power is in our family relationships, especially if we're parents. But even even as, as those of us who are parents know, children have tremendous power in their relationship with their parents. Mm-hmm. And and of course, that's why so much of the Bible story is the story of families that either get it somewhat right, never entirely right, uh, and sometimes get it terribly wrong. Um, and, you know, again, we often think, you know, when we think of power, I think we often think of, you know, politics or perhaps military power, and those are very real. But when I started to dive into this issue, I realized actually all of us confront these issues every single day. I confront it in my own home, not just when I'm out doing allegedly powerful things, but even in choosing how I relate to my wife and my children, my neighbors. It happens at every scale of human society. Well, even at, deeper than that, perhaps, Andy, is that the power struggle that goes on internally. I mean, look, for example, it, Paul talked about, you know, wow. I, spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. I know to do good, and yet I do it not. Daily I have to die unto the flesh. Don't we see demonstrated there, in that sense, an internal power struggle going on? Do we do, yield to God? Do we do yield to the devil? Who's going to kind of get control here? I think that's an amazing observation, and what it always, I think, uh, for many people, the real question in life is not actually, does God exist? I think most people 
know God exists. And Paul says even those who don't believe that sort of suppress the truth. They still know the truth. But the real question is, is God good? <laughs> and, and especially, if I serve God, well, does that mean I have to give up things I want? Does that mean I have to give up what's good? And the, the root of, of every abuse of power is the idea that, that we can't both get something good. Either I and God, I can't, God can't get what's you know, good for God and good for me, or you and I, if we get locked in a power struggle, we start to believe either I win or you win. And when that enters into our relationship with God, we've basically believed the very thing the serpent says in Genesis uh, 3, which is God's actually jealous of his power, and he doesn't want you to have all of it, so you better eat that fruit so that you'll have what God doesn't want you to have. And that's the fundamental lie, that God wants you to have something that would actually be good for you, but that God doesn't want you to have. And that's such an amazing point that you make there, because there is an aspect of this power that we define in the flesh. And I mean, we just bring up the topic. We think of power. It's the energy to drive to do something, to accomplish something. And we often think that, well, the greatest display of power is when we're flexing our muscles to use power, failing perhaps to recognize that it's somehow there's, there's another aspect that can show how powerful we can be that in the flesh might seem to be weak, but in the spiritual realm is, in fact, very powerful. We'll talk a bit about that, too, as we continue our conversation today. Andy Crouch on the line with us today. He, executive editor of Christianity Today and the author of a new book called Playing God, Redeeming the Gift of Power. We'll come back to more of our conversation as Lifeline continues here on KFAX. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. <laughs> 